session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is The Mind and the Moon by Daniel Bergner. The Mind and the Moon, My Brother's Story, The Science of Our Brains, and The Search for Our Psyches. So look forward to reading that this week and sharing it with you on next Monday's show. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is... How Minds Change by David McRaney. How Minds Change the Surprising Science of Belief, Opinion, and Persuasion. And uh, I was definitely drawn to this book because of how much, of course, anything we're doing, the work I even do, is trying to impart some kind of knowledge, ways of thinking about certain things, and of course, hoping that has some kind of an impact, that it does help minds change but also we see how much we have division that has gotten worse in recent years polarization people arguing about different topics issues and really not having productive conversations really just arguing and not changing anyone's minds but just damaging relationships if they don't know each other they just don't like each other but even friends and family trying to have discussions about political issues or Um, some type of social issue and just not really changing each other's minds or having a productive conversation, just being more angry with one another. And so uh, I'll talk about the book and I think he does a great job of outlining how minds change, what works and what doesn't work. And also to really, to do any of this, we have to try to understand what does it mean to even know something or to feel something about an issue? Because if we don't understand what's going on it's impossible to know how to change it and so one key theme throughout the book that for me is very important is having a degree of intellectual humility or epistemic humility meaning that we have opinions we have ideas we have thoughts we have beliefs but recognizing that although we might think we know something and we're so certain, we're so certain that we are correct and we're right and this is the right way to think, to have some level of humility to recognize that I could be wrong. I could have it wrong. And one easy way to remind yourself of this is if you look back five years, ten years at yourself, if you remember how you felt about different political issues, different moral issues, you will likely recognize that there have been some changes, sometimes big changes, sometimes small ones, but almost always you will see some type of evolution and changing of your ways of thinking, feeling, believing about different topics and issues. So, of course, whatever you currently think, feel, believe, you should recognize that although 
it's in a way your best understanding of those issues whatever they might be that there isn't some sense that is the right and only way to think and even you will recognize them as wrong or at least partially wrong or requiring being updated in this way it's kind of like science where we can recognize this is our best understanding of a certain issue um, the best theory we have based on the evidence our best description of something but we recognize that it's of course incomplete and will continue to be updated over time so I think that's a very important thing to, to recognize I think in today's day and age it's always been the case that social media amplifies this certainty is rewarded so strongly so if you post that you think something or you can see both sides but this is how you feel on the issue you'll get much less attention than if you say i know this is true and i know the other side is, is stupid or the other side doesn't know what they're talking about and later I, I might um in the next segment talk more on this issue and so when you look at this sense of what it feels like when we think we're right there's this great quote in the book from a pulitzer prize winning science writer katherine schultz uh, basically that until we know we are wrong being wrong feels exactly like being right and so whatever it is you think and believe right now it feels right but then when you recognize it's wrong you realize that when you were thinking that way, it felt right to you. It feels right until uh, you are wrong. So unfortunately, until we're proven wrong, we feel very right about whatever it is, which is why I think it's so important to have this level of intellectual humility of, okay, I, this is how I think, feel, believe, but I don't have the truth. And what I am thinking on these issues isn't some absolute truth that even I myself won't want to change or won't change over time. And speaking of changing, there early in the book, in the introduction, he introduces a question that I think he uh, got from uh, one of the researchers he talked about. But essentially, it's looking at when we have these conversations where we are debating an issue or trying to change someone's mind, we can obviously get very caught up in the conversation, in the debate, in the argument. But to carry this question with you, which is, why do I want to change their mind? Why do I want to change their mind? So you're in this conversation, this debate, no, no, you have to, to see it this way, or you're so wrong, or this is that way, or you should support this, or hate this, or whatever it might be. But ask yourself, why do I want to change their mind? And I'm very big on this in general, of always trying to understand your intentions. You know, I mentioned social media. Why are you posting this on social media? What's your intention? Why are you doing this thing? And we actually very often are unaware or if we think of it quickly we will sometimes come up with a self-serving reason or something that feels good or we just think might be true but when we dig a little deeper we see that actually it's something a little bit different that is our reason so why do you want to change this person's mind and that actually might be something i want to talk about later as well because i think that's a, a critical question and something that we very often forget so when we're having these debates with one another one thing that also, as I mentioned about the intellectual humility, is we at least portray ourselves as being so certain of the truth. Even there is this assumption in this book uh, at times, or when you think of how minds change or how can you have someone change their mind, the notion is that you know you're right, so you have to convince them to change their mind because you are right. And so uh, this is something that he addresses in the book, but I think in general to recognize that when you're having these conversations on an issue, I actually think 
having the focus on I have to change the other person's mind isn't the best place to start. Rather, I want to understand the other person's thinking and where they're coming from and make this a conversation where we are learning, hopefully mutual learning and understanding. But that's not the climate that many people find themselves in, especially if you're on social media or in comment sections or on Twitter, where it's really just about who's going to make the other person look stupid, who's going to win this debate or this argument, who's going to slam dunk uh, on the other person or dunk on them, I should say, and make them look bad and make them themselves look really good. So it's not really about trying to understand anything, but trying to win. And that's what we often see happening. Now, what you've also likely recognized is that there is this tendency to think, well, if someone doesn't see what I think is like the truth or the right way of seeing it, I have to show them the right facts and then they're going to see things the right way. So that there's some kind of a knowledge gap that the person does not get it because they don't have the information. But this misunderstands how we ourselves tend to get to our feelings or thoughts about something. We think it's just about the evidence that we are just weighing the pros and cons and all the data, but really it's more than likely that you have a feeling about what makes you have this type of belief or this thought or this position on the moral or political issue. So it's more of a feeling, more of experiences you've had, groups you've belonged to. There's a title, The Truth is Tribal, because it's very much that we're impacted by the people around us, our sense of identity and what group we are part of and how they see things and feel about things that impacts us. But when we recognize that the way that most people have gotten to their ways of seeing things, their beliefs, their mindsets on different issues, that it comes more from things like feelings than just looking at data, then we recognize that adding data is not going to be the solution. So he shares several different groups of people or individuals who have come up with ways that are better or more effective at helping people change their minds. And what you see is that in none of them is it someone pounding the other person with facts and telling them you have to see it this way or you're missing this information or you're not seeing it the right way because of this, that or the other. They actually enter the conversation first and foremost with a level of respect. He, he talks to this one gentleman who meets people on the street and talks to them about issues, but he makes it very clear my my job or my, my intention is not to make you look stupid or to make fun of you or to like win an argument or do anything of that sort. I want to talk to you and actually ask you questions to help you understand how you got to your position. And so it's a very different mindset than most people tend to have in these types of uh, conversations where it's very much about making the other person look bad or stupid or prove how stupid they are. And the, the internet, YouTube, um, Facebook, Instagram, wherever you look, you're, you'll see tons of videos where someone makes someone from the other side look stupid. And people love those videos, which I'll talk about in the next segment. Um, but that's not at all how the people who tend to be more effective are doing the types of ways, uh, what they do to help change minds or make people change their mind or be open to that. So they're respectful. They create rapport, respect. I'm not trying to make you look bad. And they also tend to go more towards either things like how did they arrive at that conclusion? So, for example, asking someone how confident they are, let's say, um, that in their belief of God. 
And if they say 80%, and you can ask them, okay, well, why is it 80% and not 100% or not 10% or 0%? And they can explain where they got to that sense of certainty. And that itself can be valuable in helping them evaluate it. Now, that itself is something interesting that was brought up in the book, that certainty is itself a feeling. We tend to think if we're certain of something, it's more about what you know or kind of what you think you know. But when we actually look at what's going on, being certain is a feeling. And that's why you can have a different degree of certainty. If I ask you um, what you had for lunch today, you might be 100% certain. But if I ask you what you had for lunch 10 days ago, you might be less certain, even though you might be able to think about it and come to some remembering or some way of recalling it. You'll have a different degree of certainty. It just feels more right what you ate today, your confidence in it, versus what you had 10 days ago. And so... What we see is that certainty itself is a is a feeling rather than a knowing in the sense that we think we know something as knowledge, we more feel something about it. And so he, people ask individuals, how do you how did you get to this number? Why do you feel this way? And then also you can look at things that what would change, what could change their mind about that thing? Could anything change their mind? But there's much more of a sense of not pushing them towards changing, but actually asking questions to understand and help them even better understand where they're coming from and why they have come to believe or think what they think. And so this is much more effective. And we tend to see this in general. When you push people a certain way, they tend to go in the opposite direction. Or if you're trying to pull them, they they pull away from you. But if you actually show them you're not trying to, to push them, force them, change their mind, do anything like that, let's just have a conversation and see if we can understand where you're coming from, things go much better that way. So I think that's a, a big take home. One is for me, the intellectual humility that you aren't, or you think you're so sure and you're so right, but don't be so sure that you're right or that you know what you know. So that's a very important one. Another one is to have these conversations with respect and recognize that it's not about just yelling facts at each other or proving that the other one is dumb or immoral or anything like that, that has nothing to do with trying to have a conversation. That's much more about making yourself feel something, which I'll touch on in the next segment. So ask yourself that question, why do I want to change their mind? And I think very often, if we're being real with ourselves, we realize it's actually not for good reasons. It's not that I feel that what they believe is hurting them. I feel that what they believe might be hurting others. Let's say if they're uh, you believe that uh, they need to do more for the environment or for certain groups of people. So there could be those good intentions. But I think if people take a step back or take a step, step inward, they'll recognize that often they're just trying to make themselves feel good or more right or more certain about what they already uh, feel or believe about the issue rather than some kind of a good intention. So that to me is very important is to recognize that why am I asking it? And then in the conversation to try to focus more on understanding and learning rather than just trying to win, rather than dunk on your opponent, see if you can understand something together and find some mutual understanding. Doesn't mean you have to even agree by the end of it, but you should be able to understand how the other person feels the way they do about the issue and you feel so differently. That have that respect for them as an individual that if you've come to some conclusion, there must be a way for me to understand that. And you see stories of that throughout the book. Uh, he talks to people who are flat earthers, people who are um, part of the Westboro Baptist Church, which has for decades now 
and hateful protests where they'll, for example, go uh, protest at the funeral of a gay man and have some hateful things about gay people on, on, on their signs. So horrible, horrible things. But you see that people that got out of it, often there was some kindness from strangers who treated them like uh, it, just a whole individual with respect and didn't just spew hate back at them, but through kindness and respect was able to open them a little bit to see some things a little bit differently. But at the end of the day, recognizing you're not going to change people's minds through force and through pushing them, they have to want to change their mind. And the book doesn't have this, I don't think, the sense that you can change anyone's mind to believe anything or anything like that. Um, there are some books that might say that, but that's not this book's message, but it's more about understanding how we even get to the place where we think and feel about certain things and how we can have more productive conversations. So I thought it did a great job of, of um, showing this very important topic of how we talk, how we communicate, how we can do that better, uh, how we even come to think and feel and believe about things ourselves. And there's even some great examples of, for example, um, optical illusions or things that make us realize there's so many ways that we think we know something, but maybe we don't. He also talks about the dress back in 2015. You probably remember that, that image where some people like myself saw it as white and gold, but many people were convinced it was a black and blue dress and it created these intense arguments, kind of more playful, but people were shocked because you would see, for example, uh, this dress, and if you saw it as white and gold, you couldn't believe someone would see it as a different set of colors. But I think that's just a great example of how when something seems so right to us, it's so hard for us to see it any other way, but recognize that what we experience isn't some kind of absolute universal truth. It's our truth, at least personally, for that moment, but doesn't mean it's something that is absolutely true. So uh, the book is, is great. He writes it in a very easy to read way and you learn a lot and entertain along the way. That's How Minds Change by David McGraney. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the first segment I was talking about the book How Minds Change by David McGraney. And I mentioned that uh, he shares a question early in the book that I think is really important for us to keep in mind, which is, why do I want to change their mind when you're having a conversation, a debate, whether it's online, in person, family, friend, stranger, why do I want to change their mind? And if you ask me, the reason most of us have these kinds of debates or conversations often is because we are unsure ourselves. We are actually uncertain of what we believe. And so we want to convince other people and also prove how wrong and how stupid they are to feel better about ourselves and what we think and what we believe. And this is why I think it's so critical and can be so valuable to have this intellectual humility that, yes, I have this opinion on this. Yes, I see it this way, but that it's not some absolute truth because it takes away this pressure to have to convince ourselves by trying to convince everyone else that we are right. So if we take another step back, we see that we live in an uncertain world in so many ways. First of all, it's uncertain in regards to our safety and our survival, what's going to happen to us, what will happen to us, what's going to happen in our future, what happens after we die, all these types of things. But even just in our present day to day, we are uncertain and there's an anxiety that comes with that 
uncertainty. At some level, we can even say there's a healthy level of anxiety that we have in this regard, which helps us survive. We don't neglect ourselves. We don't neglect taking care of ourselves or taking care of our future or preparing for the future because we have this certain level of anxiety of trying to get, because of the, the unpredictability of what's going to happen to us, trying to get control of things. We can't completely control it, but we try to prepare. So similarly, in an intellectual sense, it is impossible for us to make sense of the world completely. We are trying to understand it better and better, and we don't know what we don't know. Uh, but as I said, uh, quoting from the book, when we're wrong, it feels the same as when you're right until you, you figure out you're wrong. So we want to have this sense of certainty. It feels so much better to feel like I know I'm right about this, especially when we're talking about important issues, especially when we're talking about things that really matter. And especially because we can't just sit and wait to figure everything out the best that we can and then live life. We're simultaneously living our lives. We don't just have this infinite time to think about everything and then we go forward. As you're thinking about things, you're also living. That's what makes it hard because you're already making decisions every day of what to do, what not to do, how to view things. So we're trying to understand what's the best way to live your life, let's say, you know, a global type of question. But every day you're living your life. And so we have to make decisions or we are making them, whether we think about them consciously or not, of how to live our life, what to include, what not to include, what's important, what's not important. And so because of that, we do have this desire to also feel like what we're doing is right. You know what? Uh, but this is the right way I'm doing things. I spend this much time with my family and this much work. It's right. How, what else can I do? And we convince ourselves that this is the only way to do things rather than sit with that uncertainty of maybe I can do things differently, which would mean making changes, reevaluating things, and first even just accepting that I could be wrong. So because we have this understanding or we try to avoid it in a way, but there is this genuine sense that we can't know everything, we do try to convince ourselves, at least in certain ways, that we are more certain about whatever it is we think, we feel, and we believe. So what I think drives a lot of what we see happening and how people talk about a variety of issues is this projection of our own uncertainty, our own fear of being foolish, being stupid, being wrong, being immoral, being all the things we might call people who are on the other side we have our own fears of being all of those things. It's similar to what I think we see happening with things like cancel culture and when people take being woke too far, which is this sense that because we are afraid ourselves of being racist or prejudiced or having some internalized feelings of those kinds, we look for it in other people and and talk about how bad other people are in that way. So look at how racist this person is. Look at how bad this person is. We should tear them to pieces. But partially it's because we are we are aware we have some or we are afraid we have some within ourselves as well. So we project that onto others. And unfortunately what this does is that uh, I think it's very important that we are aware of racism and fight it very strongly, but it can make people feel less like they want to join the side that is fighting for these things where they see people sometimes with not the right intentions or doing things that they can't make sense of. And it's sometimes because they're being driven by the wrong things, not to uh, 
create more justice in the world and to reduce inequalities, but because it's their own sense of how they feel either inferior or feel uh, they might be seeing things the wrong way. So I think that happens in that type of a way, but also when it comes to political debates, which overlap with uh, social issues, of course. But when we look at these political debates, I think the same thing is going on. Okay, I believe that this type of taxation is right, or pro-choice, this is how I feel, I'm pro-choice, or I'm pro-life, or this is how I see the gun issue in America, this is how I see this issue. And of course, we feel certain to a degree, but of course, if we really look deeply, we have some level of uncertainty too. And so because of that, we want to prove that the other side is so wrong and so stupid. Even as I mentioned in the last segment about things like YouTube videos, you can see so many YouTube videos where some intellectual, pseudo-intellectual or some kind of you know, media figure, and the title of the video will read something like, so-and-so destroys and then person from you know, some side, like woke, like liberal, like millennial, or conservative, so-and-so, whatever it might be. And so you see all these videos where someone is destroying someone from the other side. And of course, the people watching are the ones who are on the side of the winner in this debate. So the person who's dunking on uh, the other side. And why are we watching these videos? Because it feels so good to prove, and definitely in air quotes, prove that we are right and the other side is so stupid when really the only thing that's happening is very often you're having someone who either is outmatched intellectually or uh, on top of that the other person is just very good at debating and can put things in a better way or has also the microphone or has certain power in that situation to quote unquote win the argument and so they make the other person look stupid and we feel so good but it's like if you were saying you know, I don't know, uh, people from your country are better at basketball than people from the other country. And you have like an adult playing with like a, a child and then saying, look how much better we are. But it's like, you're not seeing the best of your, uh, what you have and what they have. You're playing a game where you're totally in favor. So it's the same kind of thing. You're not seeing the best of your ideas and their ideas being presented by someone who could present the idea strongly. You're, you're finding people who are not matched evenly, or at least even in that moment are not matched evenly. So I think that's why people watch these videos so much. They love them so much because it makes them feel so good and so right. But for any issue, you can see videos uh, where, where both sides are winning and destroying and making the other side look stupid. And it's because of this feeling of certainty it gives us. Look how right I am. Look how stupid the other side is and how smart my side is because I'm with this smart person in this issue. So we have to be very careful as consumers of information, um, whether it's in your daily life, but especially social media is going to create many more opportunities for this, of who we listen to. Because again, we have this anxiety that makes us want to be more certain about whatever it is, whether it's a religious figure or it's about political issues or intellectual issues, whatever they might be. We want to have certainty because we feel an anxiety. And so there's always going to be this type of a vacuum that gets filled up by people in a type of symbiotic relationship where, okay, there's an anxiety and there's someone that's going to sell you certainty. I know that this is right. I know this truth. I am smart. 
I know things, you can trust me. And if you see it like I see it, that means you are right. And you don't have to think about it for yourself. You don't have to even worry about it anymore. You can just know that you are right. And so people align themselves with these figures because it makes them feel calm. It makes them feel like they don't have to worry. That anxiety can melt away because they're fooling themselves into that certainty. So basically what's happening is you are getting uh, basically a, a Xanax for your anxiety being sold by that person and they're getting your attention. You buy their books, you listen to their videos and their talks and they become famous. So they get that fame and notoriety and wealth and everything else that can come with it. And you get this sense of calm and certainty and an alleviation of your anxiety that what you are uncertain about, you don't have to worry about being uncertain anymore. This person has the truth. And so we can understand the draw towards that. It's so comforting for someone to tell us they, they know the truth and then they show us we can trust them. And so we feel good to believe in them and believe in everything they say. And we don't have to worry about being wrong anymore. But the harsh reality is, as I've mentioned many times recently on the show, is that no one can do the thinking for us. Even it's something I, I, I try to be mindful of in how I present things, that I am presenting my opinion, but that I know that it might not be right. And it definitely is not going to be right about many things. Even if I listen to my shows from eight years ago, I'm sure I'll see many ways that my thinking has changed since then. So I try to be mindful of that as well. So no one can do the thinking for you. And no matter how smart someone is, they're going to be very wrong on some issues. No matter what they're talking about, they're not going to know it all. Um, even uh, I mentioned this sometimes that Einstein was wrong when it came to physics in some ways. He made some big mistakes. He's a genius. He made huge contributions. But even in the field of physics where he was incredible, he made mistakes. So how could we think that someone who's thinking on social issues knows it all perfectly? But that's what we want. And again, if that person wants that from their narcissism and to feed uh, that sense of them and to also allow them to become famous and make money and get those types of benefits, they will sell you that. But beware, they're trying to sell you something and you are feeding into that comfort or seeking that comfort and trying to take that in. But the better and I think more realistic mindset is, first of all, no one is going to be right about everything. Obviously, when we say it out loud, it seems obvious, but also that we don't know as much as we'd like to think we do. We want to say, think we know, we want to think we are right, but really we are doing the best we can to give our best understanding and to come to our own personal truth, but we don't have the absolute truth and no one does. All right, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the last segment, I wanted to talk about a recent experience I had. I posted it on my Instagram page. Um, so to, to end the shows, I've been saying for the last, I don't know, month or so, be kind and take risks. And uh, last week, I, I did the second part of that. I took a, a risk, and I wanted to share that with you all. So for quite some time, I've um, wanted to try stand-up comedy, uh, whether I would pursue it or not, I wasn't sure, but at least as a uh, something to try, something to 
expand on my own set of skills and experiences. And so I, and all, a lot of my life I'd heard from people saying, maybe you should give that a try. When I'm with uh, friends, I tend to get into a fun mood and, and make a lot of jokes. And people would say, oh, have you ever thought of doing stand-up comedy? So it was always on my mind. But I think it was one of those things that I always kind of had in a, oh, yeah, someday type of a bucket. And I think most people have these someday buckets where it's like, oh, yeah, someday I'll do this, whatever, fill in the blank. Whether it's a experience like bungee jumping or skydiving or traveling or somewhere or traveling in general or um, taking a certain step in their career or relationship or whatever it might be. We have a lot of these someday types of um, plans in our mind. And I, I've realized how much I've done this to myself and it's something that I've been dealing with, recognizing that I had a lot of these someday types of things in my mind and I wanted to resist that comfort, which was that I'll always have time to do whatever it is. And right now is not the right time. So I should do it later. And so, uh, this really, I think turning 40 this year, it's interesting where it's just a number and I didn't think it would have such an effect, but I think it actually did make me think about things of, you know, where I am in my life and the being in midlife and you hear about midlife crisis. And I think I, I felt some of those feelings that could come up, but recognizing my own mortality that more directly uh, something that in a few books I've read the last couple of years have definitely affected me as well but that this sense that I'll always have time to do it later is a fiction that we tell ourselves uh, related to what I was talking about in the last segment to comfort this anxiety of our own death that it's a nice feeling to think we'll always have time to do something always have time to to spend time with loved ones to say i love you or to work on this relationship ah it's you know we should talk about that issue but later you know right now is not a good time and so uh, i've been trying to resist this because i think our tendency is to stay in that mindset that we'll always have time because we don't want to face things that make us uncomfortable so we find a way to justify waiting doing it later. Oh, there's, there's no need to do it now. Right now, you know, I'm so busy with this or this is going on. There will be a better time to do it later. And so I really want to emphasize this as I'm doing it for myself, that there won't always be time. Our time is finite. You won't always have time to do whatever you want, um, or have the opportunity or, uh, even be able to make it happen. You need to take that leap into making something happen. It's not going to just happen on its own. And if something feels risky, it will always feel wrong, meaning that it's never going to feel like the right time to take a risk. It's never going to feel like the right time to do something that makes you uncomfortable. So when I work with couples and we talk about when they talk about some issues or when would they talk about, or are they going to talk about something? We do see this tendency to say, oh, it wasn't the right time. It was a bad day. It was a good day. It was uh, a, a stressful day. It was a relaxing day. Whatever it is, we'll find a reason not to do it. If it's a relaxing day, oh, I didn't want to mess up the relaxing day. You know, it was just such a nice day to like relax and just spend time together. Or, oh no, such a stressful day. Couldn't add something else to such a stressful day. So we see that there's never this right time because it's never going to feel right to do something that feels a little wrong or risky or feels 
uncomfortable. It's going to take a little bit of effort, a push to, to get us there. And so I'll share a bit about my experience. So with stand-up comedy, I thought about it for a while. In general, I've been um, pursuing some more creative type of experiences for myself and, and taking some more risks in different ways. So I've been doing that in general. Um, also, for me, what was helpful, my brother, Parham, he has been doing some open mics for a few months now. Uh, and he talked about it for a while. And it's interesting how with your friends and loved ones, you can push one another because I was pushing him to not just write material, but to go and practice it or to actually perform it. And then that served as a push for him. But then he more than returned a favor because he had already opened the door by doing it himself. But last week, it was really spur of the moment. Um, he, I wanted to see him and spend some time with him. He said, I'm already going to do some open mics. He was signed up. And I said, oh, you know, if you want, I can just come with you. And he said, well, what if you performed it? I was like, oh, okay. And then I just said, let's make that happen. But the lists were full. You had to sign up a bit in advance and the lists were full and we kept checking. And it's an interesting feeling I had when I was checking these lists because I was looking as if it was like tickets for like a concert or trying to get something you want. But I realized that I had a little bit of a relief every time I saw the list was full because that meant I didn't have to perform uh, that night. So it was this weird feeling of checking, but having a mixed feeling. And that's what I mean, that there's a always going to feel like some ambivalence and something pulling you back. Oh, you know, I'll just go with him this time, but I'll perform another time. I, I don't know. I shouldn't do it tonight. So anyway, we, you know, we kept checking and around 5.15 or so, I forgot exactly the time, um, he texted me that, oh, I got you on one of the lists, the spot opened up. And so I had this like intense, you know, rush of excitement, anxiety, a whole bunch of feelings, and definitely did have a partial sense of maybe I can, I can still back out of it or get out of it. But I just told myself I have to do it. I have to go and, and make this happen this time. Uh, basically gave myself no no choice but to commit to it. So having him, his support, him putting me on the list, that accountability, knowing he would be there, all those things were definitely helpful in making it happen. And so uh, really, I, I finished with my sessions uh, that day and then uh, drove to the place where the stand-up comedy open mic was and was really coming up with my material as I was driving there and some jokes I could say or some experiences I could share. And so I went and uh, my my brother, he apparently uh, taped the first two minutes or so. Uh, watching it myself, I'm, you know, I'm kind of, it's fun, it's funny, but I'm also like, gosh, why did I say it this way? You can tell I'm nervous, definitely critical of myself. Um, but I I really am happy that I did it. Not because I did such a great job because I really don't think I did but that wasn't even my intention and that was helpful is that I I knew this was just uh you know an open mic in front of a small group of people it wasn't really that the um the result like I wanted to get a big result like get a lot of laughs or make sure you know people liked me or anything like that uh, of course I wouldn't have minded those things but I knew my intention was just to get this first time under my belt to just have the experience so that now that I've done it it'll feel different to do it again because I know I've done it at least that that first time which is always going to be the hardest so I went in with that intention that it's more about the process than some kind of result I'm just going to go on stage and uh, have that experience. I definitely, when I was there, I felt pretty comfortable. It was a nice vibe in the room. But then when I went on stage, I definitely felt nervous. And I remember when I finished, I could feel my, my heart racing and, you know, some 
very clear symptoms of being anxious. They were very strong, and I felt it up there as well. I thought I did okay, especially for my first time, but it was just more, again, for the experience of it. And so I'm so glad I did it. And then I posted it on social media, and what was so nice is that a handful of people, um, many people said positive comments in general, but specifically some people either sent me something or said they posted something or did something where it was a risk for themselves, like of themselves singing or performing something, and they put it out there. And I thought that was so so nice. And that's why I wanted to share my experience. I did it last week on social media, but tonight on the show, um, to hopefully encourage others to take these kinds of risks as well. And as I, as I was mentioning these stories, most of them were creative types of things where people sent me what they did. But taking risks, of course, can be in so many domains of our life that we don't take a risk, that we hold back, and that I do want to encourage you to think about it in your own life. And I could imagine what goes through most people's heads, even as I say that, they might think, oh, that's great that he did it, good for him. And then if you think about yourself, you might have some things come to your mind, but then likely you will think, oh, you know, but I can't do that now. Or, you know, again, that feeling will come up if I can do it later. There will be this other time to do it that will feel more right. But I hope you'll resist that comforting feeling, that comforting um, lie we can tell ourselves that there will definitely be some better time later or that we will do it at that better time and push yourself to do it now. There won't be some magical time where it's all going to come together. That's the fallacy we tell ourselves. But I hope you won't listen to that voice and will instead push yourself into some discomfort and just do whatever it is. And as I said, focus more, especially at the beginning, on the process than the result. If you're going to go perform for the first time, it's not supposed to be good. The first time is like a rough draft. And that's what I was feeling when I was on stage that day was this is my rough draft. I'm just getting used to being on stage, holding the microphone in front of these people. I've done public speaking, but it felt very different. But doing that um, required me to focus more on the process than, okay, I have to make sure everyone laughs. And and if you look at actually schools of thought on uh, stand-up comedy in general, that you don't want to focus on just getting laughs itself, but that's its own area of conversation. But just myself, the focus was more on just getting getting up there. So I hope you'll do something. And if you do, I uh, would be happy to, if you send them my way, whatever risks you're taking. Sometimes um, sending it can be good, but also if you're thinking of doing it, that can give you some accountability of, okay, well, I said I'm going to do this, and now I have to go ahead and do that. And as I mentioned, my brother uh, was really instrumental in making this happen, literally putting my name on the list. And if it wasn't for him, I probably wouldn't have done that. And so I'm very grateful. And it's a reminder of how helpful it can be to have loved ones, their support, their pushing, uh, their uh, encouragement, and their accountability. We can need those things because it is so hard to do these things. It's always going to feel wrong to do something risky. But if we have that social support, we can feel a little bit safer. doesn't mean it's ever going to be easy, but it can feel safer to do something that feels a little bit scary to do. So I'm very thankful to him for being there and for, you know, he was there for that first time, which was really cool, um, but for really giving me that encouragement to do so. So I hope you'll consider what you can do for yourself when it comes to being kind and taking risks. This segment has been focused on that second part. What are the risks in your life, the things that you tell yourself 
you will do later. And I hope you don't listen to that voice that tells you you can do it later, but try to do it now. And as I said, I had so much anxiety going there and this feeling of it would be kind of nice if I couldn't go, but I really just told myself I have to do it this time and I'm going to do it tonight. And it ended up happening and I'm so happy that it did. So I hope you will take some more risks. I hope you will give yourself the opportunity to try something new to surprise yourself. We oftentimes get comfortable with ourselves because it's easier to think we know ourselves completely, just like we do with others at times. But I think we are all full of surprises within ourselves, but we won't know until we give ourselves a chance to show that part of ourselves or to show who we are. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Again, the book of the week for this week is The Mind and the Moon by Daniel Bergner. The Mind and the Moon, my brother's story, the science of our brains, and the search for our psyches. All right, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. Be kind and take risks. Have a wonderful night. <laughs>